Hello, and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Krauss, licensed professional counselor. I'm thrilled to be bringing you an interview today with Stephen G. Post, PhD. If you don't know about Stephen G. Post, I'll tell you a little bit about him. He's an opinion leader and public speaker. He is the best-selling author of Why Good Things Happen to Good People, How to Live a Longer, Happier, Healthier Life by the Simple Act of Giving. Post has been quoted in more than 4,000 national and international newspapers and magazines, including Parade Magazine, Oprah's O Magazine, and the U.S. News and World Report, and he has been featured on numerous television shows, including The Daily Show. Post has inspired thousands with great stories and the best of medical knowledge and how being kind is good for our happiness, health, and resiliency. Described by Martin E. P. Siegelman in his book Flourish as one of the stars of positive psychology, Post is renowned for proving that in general, it is good to be good, and that compassion improves patient outcomes as well as clinician well-being. Post addressed the U.S. Congress on volunteerism and public health, receiving the Congressional Certificate of Special Recognition for Outstanding Achievement. He received the Paper of the Year Award from the editors of the American Journal of Health Promotion for his paper, Rx, It's Good to Be Good. Post was awarded the Pioneer Medal of Outstanding Leadership in Healthcare from the Healthcare Chaplaincy Network and the Comma Book Award in Medical Humanities from the World Literacy Canada. His book, The Moral Challenge of Alzheimer's Disease, Ethical Issues from Dying to Diagnosis, was designated a medical classic of the century by the British Medical Journal in 2009. They wrote about Post, until this pioneering work was published in 1995, the ethical aspects of one of the most important illnesses of our aging populations were a neglected topic. Post is one of the three recipients of the Alzheimer's Association's Distinguished Service in recognition of personal and professional outreach to the Alzheimer's Association chapters on ethics issues important to people with Alzheimer's and their families. He has taught at the University of Chicago Medical Center, Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, and the Renaissance School of Medicine at Stony Brook University, where he is the founding director of the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics. He is an elected member of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, the New York Academy of Medicine, and the Royal Society of Medicine in London. He is the author of over 300 articles in peer-reviewed journals, including Science, the New England Medical, New England Journal of Medicine, Psychosomatic Medicine, Journal of the American Academy of Religion, and the Journal of American Medical Association. In 2003, Post was invited to join founding fellows of the International Society for Science and Religion, ISSR, based at Cambridge University. Founded in 2002, ISSR is the world's preeminent learned society devoted in this intersection with 200 fellows from the science, philosophy, history, and spirituality. Uh, in 2001, he founded the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love, named by Sir John Templeton, who selected Post as president. And you can learn more about that at unlimitedloveinstitute.com. The Institute is a nonprofit 501c3 charity that investigates kindness, giving, and spirituality. I am excited to share this interview with you, and I think you will enjoy it. All right, welcome, Stephen G. Post, PhD, to the show. It's an honor to have you on The Intentional Clinician. Well, thanks for having me, Paul. It's a delight. Absolutely. So, I have just been reading your new book, uh, God and Love, 
on Route 80, uh, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. Um, I don't even know if I talked about this in the bi biography, but I loved it. I read the whole thing in two weeks. So it was, uh, it was a page turner. That's good to hear because if a book doesn't have some energy, it's not going to work in the end, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to kind of ask you about it and then kind of open it up uh, to you to tell us a little bit about the book. I don't want to reveal the whole book because, you know, mm -hmm. I want people to read this thing. I think it's fantastic. Um, but it there is a kind of a premise about the book, which starts out with a dream. And could you tell us a little bit about the premise of the book and why you wrote it? Yeah, so uh, it's it's a book in large part about adolescent spirituality and, in fact, a particular experience I had as a 15-year-old when I was up in a boarding school in Concord, New Hampshire, a place called St. Paul's. Uh, I was inclined... Even at a young age, I was reading spiritual classics, and I would rather um, walk down the fall paths than go to a hockey game. Um, and uh, I had a recurring dream. It recurred a half a dozen times over the period of about a year. Uh, and it was very unusual. I wasn't a big dreamer. I didn't necessarily even believe in the significance of dreams. But... Uh, uh, very early in the morning, kind of half awake and half asleep, I would have this dream of a very thick, silvery mist. I couldn't see very far in front of me. And I knew, though, I was on a road to the west. I would look to my side and I saw the face of a youth, of a young man with stringy blonde hair. He was leaning out on a ledge as if to jump. And then all of the, the mist uh, dissipated. And there was the face of a blue angel uh, that said in a feminine voice, if you save him, you too shall live. And I would have written this dream off as the overactive imagination of... Uh, a kid with a few demerits who'd maybe had a hot dog that caused <laughs> dyspepsia. Uh, but, but it recurred six times. And when it did occur, I would go to, we had morning chapel every morning at eight o'clock. It's kind of like a Harry Potter scene up there at St. Paul's. It's very <laughs> Gothic and really beautiful architecturally. <clears throat> and I would go early and sit on my favorite pew and just kind of, uh, meditate on the dream and i wondered did it have any meaning was it the universal mind trying to break through my sort of normal mundane consciousness uh was it something i should follow was it just craziness and um and so the dream was a part of my my growing up that year and and i had a great sacred studies teacher who was an episcopal priest his name was rod wells hmm. he was a friend of um Alan Watts, who was a Buddhist out on the West Coast. And Rod uh, listened to my dream story, and he really appreciated it and encouraged me to go with him. And we did this um, one afternoon 
we drove from Concord, New Hampshire, down to New Haven, Connecticut. I'd never been to New Haven before. And he was a graduate of Yale Div School, and he had set this up. So I was the center of attention in this seminar with about 15 Masters of Divinity students uh, preparing for ministry and a very well-known Jungian psychologist of religion by the name of James Diddies. And um, they asked me to tell them about the dream and what it meant to me. And uh, we went into it in a lot of detail. And I said, you know, everybody up at St. Paul's, we we read Emerson's essay, The, em- the Oversoul, for its literary value. But I said, I think I'm the only one who really kind of believes it, that that our minds are not just derived from tissue and brain and cells, but there's something very mysterious about mind, that there is kind of mind before matter, and that can connect us in very uncanny ways. That was just my inclination. Um, You know, some people today, Larry Dossie would call it non-local mind, which is fine. Deepak Chopra would do the same. Uh, But uh, at any rate, uh, I had a great mentor in Rod Wells, and uh, up at up at Yale, by the way, they asked me, you know, had I done anything on the basis of the dream? I said, yeah, I actually applied to a college out west where no, no St. Paul's kids ever went, and that was Reed College in Portland, Oregon. So I applied to, I had applied to Reed, and they were kind of aghast at that because everybody there, you know, either they went to East Coast schools or they went to Stanford. But uh, that was it. And then I, you know, two years later. I had this remarkable experience uh, when I was 17 um, with my dad's car. Oh, <laughs> Should yeah. I go into that? <laughs> well, yeah. Um, yeah, actually, I want to I want to hear more of the story. I, I also wanted to just make a comment before you tell about the dad's car real quick, which I thought was the inspiring, really inspiring part of this book and I guess your life, because this is a true story. So I want to point that out for the audience. This is a true story about your life. Yeah, I mean, I shared the dream with all my classmates. And I mean, everybody from, you know, Charlie Scribner to Gary Trudeau were floating around in those days. And everybody knew this. And and some of them brushed it off. And some of them were more skeptical than others. And I didn't know if I believed it, but it had recurred enough times so that I thought, well, you know, Maybe there's something to it, and well, and that's and that's the that's what I, I loved about the book, and I guess your your personality is that you you honestly and open heartedly told everyone, people from people that were possibly interested in dreams, like a Jungian who might tell you to interpret it internally and look at your anima anonymous and just you know metaphorically deal with it, or somebody who's like, oh, that's a sign of something, and also science people who said, you know. Uh, or, you know, very devoted scientists who might say, well, that's just sort of a, a material uh, exporting of some data on your tissues. And you open heartedly told all of these people, which I found amazing, because I feel like that's the people have dreams all of the time. And they, and they maybe even reoccurring dreams, and they don't share them. And yet there's a sense that maybe there's something more there. We, you know, we still don't know exactly what dreams are. Um, you know, in terms of there's not a definitive a definition. And and then I don't want to spoil it, but this dream had, I think, almost all of the layers I've talked about and one other layer, which I'll leave for the story, um, ended up having another layer that's even more significant. So I just, I think that I, I just wanted to say that's inspiring to me that you, 
told everyone about it and were open to feedback. And I think it seems like people received you well because of your openness. Yeah, I mean, I was a likable kid <laughs> and I wasn't overbearing. Uh, and, you know, we did have a lot of classes in sacred studies and ancient history. And, and so there were opportunities to talk about dreams a little bit anyway. And Rod was a good psychologist as well as a minister. So, yeah, I mean, um, I, I, I wasn't certain it had any meaning at all. Maybe it was just anxiety. Um, you know, some dreams are just things we, 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 we conjure up to deal with the pressures in life. And, and other dreams um, can be kind of problem solving. And this one, though, it kind of felt a little bit premonitional, is how I would put it. And, uh, and it was very vivid. And I had not had a dream like that ever before. And so I was kind of taken with it. And I enjoyed, like, you know, I, when I was at that class at Yale Div School, I was smiling. I was, you know, and, and people, people were really, really kind of engaged in it. Um, but what happened was when I was 17, you know, I'm, I'm, so I'm going to Swarthmore and, and I, it's summertime. I'm home uh, in New York and Rod had gotten me a job tutoring in the Bronx because I had tutored kids in New Hampshire. They were mostly French Canadian kids and, you know, came from relatively poor families uh, around the city. And uh, it was very gratifying. So that was my summer. It was all set. But my mother in particular, my mother and my father both, they said, no, you, you, you can't do this. It's too dangerous. The Bronx is too dangerous. And I said, no, it's not. And we went back and forth for at least a couple of days about that. It got pretty heated. And finally, my mom said, well, you know, we're not going to support you for college if you insist on this. And so I eventually, um, you know, I relented and I said, okay, so what am I going to do for a job this summer? And my dad was the president of a big furniture store on Fifth Avenue, kind of across from Scribner's Books. It was called W&J Sloan. It's gone now, but it was a very hot place at the time. And he knew all of the uh, manufacturers of lamps and furniture and stuff <laughs> across greater New York. And he said, I got a job for you. You can work in Bill De Bono's lampshade factory in Patchogue, which is on the South Shore of Long Island. And I said, okay, I'll give it a try. So I drove dad's secondhand gray Mercedes 190, which had seen much better days, um, to this lampshade factory. Um, and I did this for two weeks. And I worked cutting cardboard between two really large Italian women, respectfully stated. It was sweaty. There was no air conditioning. And Bill would walk around with his big cigar, and he would kind of supervise us. It was quite an experience. And after two weeks, I was finished with it. So <laughs> I had my classical guitar. I had 50 bucks in my wallet, and I had my copy of Siddhartha. And I drove out to West Hampton Beach, which is a little further east on Long Island. And I had some friends from St. Paul's who, who lived there in the summer. <clears throat> and we, we were around that evening at about 11 o'clock. I said, you know, I'm going to follow my dream. And they were completely shocked. I said, I'm going to follow my dream and I'm going to drive west. And they just didn't know what to do. And I got in the car and I drove down the Sunrise Highway. And I drove uh, through the Midtown Tunnel and I drove 
up and over the George Washington Bridge. And I'd never been west of the George Washington Bridge before. And all I knew was I'm going west. So there's two signs that you hit right away. One says 95 South, and the other says Route 80 West. And I was going on Route 80 West. And I drove west on 80 that, that night. And about five in the morning, smack dab in the middle of the state of Pennsylvania, which is a really long state, at the Lewisburg exit. It's interesting, my daughter would eventually go to Bucknell College, which is right there in Lewisburg. But oh. the exit, there's nothing around. And so it's five in the morning. And I'm thinking, I'm going to do a U-turn over the midway. And I'm going to drive home. I still got money for gas. And I'll have my reputation intact. No one will ever know this uh, escapade occurred. But just as I was thinking that, the generator on the Mercedes went out. And, and back in those days, cars had generators. And w- when they go out, you know, everything's gone. Every bit of light and energy, the engine's gone. And all I could do was get over on the right-hand shoulder. Um, it's barely dawn. And I look out and I see miles and miles and miles of cornfields and wheat fields. There's no telephone booths, nothing. So I did what a young guy would do. I pulled a piece of paper out of the glove compartment and I wrote a note in pencil, which to this day, my family lives in infamy. And it (laughs) said to the Pennsylvania State Police, please return this car to Henry A.V. Post, 44 Davison Lane East, West Islip, New York, 516-669-5655, from his son, who no longer works in the lampshade factory. (laughs) And I thought that the car breaking down was kind of a sign, if you will, in synchronicity terms, that I should actually pursue this journey. I could have interpreted it differently, you know, maybe it was a sign that I should go home. But anyway, I stuck my thumb out with my guitar and my 50 bucks and my Siddhartha book. And immediately a big white truck came by and uh, the door flung open. And it was a country and Western dressed guy named who said, my name's Gary, where you go? And I said, West. He said, well, I can get you to Chicago. And, and he was a very deep, prayerful guy. Uh, 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 you know, more on the evangelical side, but very deep. And, and uh, we had a great conversation about deep things. And he dropped me off near Grant Park in downtown Chicago. And, and they happened to be having, a, they were having a protest there at the time. So it was pretty crowded. And I sat on the bench for a couple of days. I played Villalobos, Granados, earned some more money from tips. Uh, caught on with a a group of hippies who were heading west towards San Francisco in their microbus. And uh, and I was off. And, and it wasn't until we got to Nebraska, because 80 goes through Nebraska, you know, past Omaha, and then just before Lincoln, one of these gals said to me, you really ought to call your mom. Hmm. So we pulled over to a um, a stop area, and I, and I called Collect. And my mom said, oh, Stevie, thank God you're alive. We can call off the Pinkertons. And I said, I should get slapped for this. I said, Mom, why did you call the Pinkertons? Didn't you get my note? <laughs> and she said, we got your note. We got the car back. It's in the shop. And she said, we should have let you tutor 
uh, in the Bronx? I said, absolutely. And she says, so now where are you going? I said, well, I'm going west. I'm following this sort of premonition I have, and I'm going west. And I said, do you know Cousin George's address? So I had a cousin who was older than me, George Lamont, and he lived in the Mission District. He was kind of a Vietnam vet subculture guy. He lived on 4 Chenery Street, so mom gave me his address, and I made it to George's, and I slept on his floor, and there was a Nichiren Shosho Buddhist temple on the corner of Market and Chenery, and, and I was very interested to be part of that community. I chanted Nam Yoho Renge Kyo with the beads loud, and it was so beyond time and place, and there was a mentor I had there named Gus, who was a Japanese-American old man who'd been interned during the uh, war in Hawaii. And he would follow me around to the Hispanic bars and I would play music and make money. And I never wanted to go to college. That was the end. That was the end of it. Hmm. But I drew a really bad number in the draft. Uh, they, they had your birthdays in a bin. And I called the Reed people and I said, look, I know I turned you down, but can you open up a spot for me? And they said, yeah. And uh, so really early in the morning, seven in the morning in front of the temple, with Gus, Cousin George, a bunch of people there. I said goodbye. They gave me a Gahon zone. A lot of people don't know what that is, but it's a scroll. And it's got some symbols on it. It was a Japanese Gahon zone, like, you know, symbol of the one mind of uh, cosmic mystery and so forth. <clears throat> and they said, it's, it's, it's scrolled up, it's in a packet. They said, you take this, and they explained it to me a little bit, and it's bring you good luck the rest of your life. So I took the Marcus Street bus. I took another bus. I got to Golden Gate Park. I walked across the park, which is a long, big park. And I got to the foot of the bridge. And I started walking across the bridge. And it's incredibly thick, silvery mist. It's like a huge silvery fog. And I couldn't see more than maybe, you know, four feet in front of my nose. I walked all the way on the left to the middle of the big span there. And in those days, you know, the, 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 uh, um, there was a little bit of a fencing area railing that was only about waist high. Now it's like, you know, chest high. But um, uh, I, I looked to my left because I heard a little shuffling and I saw a, a profile that looked kind of like the kid I saw in my dream. I won't say exactly, but he, 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 kind of like he did, and with the same stringy blonde hair. And so I did a double take, and I looked at him, and he saw me, because he was leaning over, thinking about jumping, I assume. And, uh, and I said to him very softly, I truly hope that you're not planning to jump. And he got indignant, uh, like I'd interrupted him in this sacred moment. And he started uh, screaming out verses from Macbeth, like, life is empty, nothingness. And he was so defiant. <clears throat> and I said, you know, we all are, are desperate detours. We're all looking for meaning. And me too. And I said, I could be out there on the ledge and you could be right here. I mean, we're kind of in the same boat. And, and, and I said, I'm just not ready to jump. And so... <clears throat> um, um, I said, look, let me tell you, I think somehow or another, I came all the way across the country to meet you right here at this moment in this place. And I can't explain it, but I'll tell you what happened. So for about 20 minutes, 
you know. I explained the dream, the trip to New Haven, the argument with my parents, leaving the car when it just had broken down synchronistically. Uh, I had read Young, by the way, because Rod Wells had us read Young, so I'd read his essay on synchronicity. And I said, you know, um, I think I was intended to be here meeting you. And he said, that's impossible. I said, well, it is, but you know, think about it. Here I am. And I, I know it's strange because that, that dream was two years ago. I was 15 and it was 3000 miles away. And how could this possibly happen? Um, but here I am. And so then I said, look, I want to help you out. I got an idea. And I pulled my gahonzo out from my backpack okay? <laughs> and I unscrolled it. And I said, if I'm going to give you my cajon song, it's going to give you great fortune. It's bad for me to give it away, I'm told, but I'm giving it to you. But you have to come over here, over the rail, and let me explain it to you. And so he came across, and I, I kind of explained the cajon zone and some of the symbols, and Gus had taught me a few of them. And I said, look, <clears throat> you can have this, but you've got to make a promise. You have to walk south on the bridge walk across the Golden Gate Park, get on the Market Street bus and go to Chenery. And here's a note. And I wrote a note it's in the book, you know, dear cousin George, this is Harry. Please let him sleep where I was sleeping. Bring him down to the temple, introduce him to Gus and try to take care of him. And so, um, and to make a long story short, Gus went south. I went north because I'm headed for Oregon. I got to the north foot of the bridge, had my thumb out, and pretty quickly a farmer's truck came by, and a guy opened the door. A lot of trucks in my journey, and and I'll never forget this. He said, hey, my name is Dwayne Dill, D-I-L-L, just like in Dill Pickle, and this here is my wife, Dorothy, and there was this red-haired middle-aged woman in the passenger seat, and where are you going? I said, I'm going to Oregon. He said, well, we can get you most of the way, but that that moment, you know, uh, uh, I felt somehow that the the dream, which I wasn't sure of, I, you know, to my view, maybe the dream was just complete rubbish, just, you know, something I had fabricated in a moment of anxiety and whatever. But uh, suddenly I, I began to think, you know, there's really something to this dream and everything that had happened, you know, from the time I had left West Hampton, well, even before that, the argument with my parents, everything was sort of perfectly set up, had to have been perfectly set up, and even what was going on with Harry. And we were supposed to have this rendezvous uh, on the Golden Gate Bridge. And so I began to believe more deeply, I think, uh, based on my experience in this idea of a one mind or an infinite mind, uh, a mind before matter, and how our, our minds have a certain kind of mysterious non-local essence. It's kind of Jungian, call it a collective unconscious. You can call it a lot of things, but um, but somehow we're more connected than we know. And that's why the subtitle of the book is um, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. Yes, I I love that uh, story. And I'm, I'm really glad you shared it because I think it's, it's going to segue <coughs> into some more topics. And I, I love the book because the book continues um, which I think people should probably read a lot of that to find out. There's so many more synchronicities and interesting events that seem to be um, 
you know, in some ways, when you look at it, almost like orchestrated, like right place, right time, and amazing opportunities and work that you sort of followed. And so, uh, yeah, it was just, it's just very, very interesting to me. So I, I really enjoyed it. And I, w- I want to know a little bit, I think maybe about, maybe this is a good time to jump into a little bit of the philosophy because in the book you tell the story and then there's little interludes that talk a little bit about philosophy, maybe one or two pages here or there and between chapters and you kind of summarize what you've learned and maybe a lesson that we could all learn. And, uh, and since you started with this, one of the things that really impressed me was your, your idea of the infinite mind and also how, you are so far beyond any sort of sectarian uh, notions. So my religion's better than your religion or whatever. And you, you, you talked about how you used to memorize Bible verses with some guy that kind of Mr. Took Mueller. Oh, yeah, yeah, Mr. Mueller, right. He, a, a guy, Mr. Mueller, he sort of mentored you in a way uh, one summer. Well, and... I was just a little boy, like just six years old, seven years old. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, just so many interesting stories and how, um, it, it seems like it just made sense to you naturally. Uh, and I, and I think you used, I don't know if you said your parents, were your parents in a religion? I can't remember that. Not much. I mean, they, they were, uh, you know, officially Catholic because my mother came from an Irish Catholic family, but dad was Episcopal and we didn't go to church much. Uh, and when people prayed, if ever, it was just, you know, very formulaic. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know? Uh, but the Mullers were really deep, and that's where I really learned to pray because he was this very profound guy. He was Presbyterian; his wife was too. But and they lived down the street. There was nobody on West uh, on Oak Neck Lane in West Islip, and so I would go over there and I would rake leaves and shovel snow. And we he had a really great garage with a wood shop in it, and we would uh, burn uh, passages like "God loves a cheerful giver," you know into these pine planks, varnish them, and, and nail them onto the trees. And it was a wooded area. <clears throat> so there's some Robert Frost poems that we did too. And so it was really cool to walk down the paths because you'd see all these things. But Mr. Muller, he was a great clamber. We used to clam together. We had a, a flat deck clamming boat. And he used to pray really, really intensely and deeply, almost like a shaman, you know asking God to bring us to the clam beds on the Great South Bay. And he always just went out there and he intuitively, he, he knew where they were. It's like a good sailor knows where the wind puffs are before they get there. And then he would say, God shows the way you have to do the raking. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. Yeah. So I, I love that. I, I'm, yeah, I'm glad you told that part because I think it's all going to connect because in San Francisco, you actually became part of uh, at least a group of uh, people that were in the Buddhist temple mm-hmm. and doing the chanting. And can you tell a little bit about that? Well, it was great because when you have, you know, 40 people in a room uh, uh, seated down on the floor with their beads chanting, Nam Yoho Renge Kyo, Nam Yoho Renge Kyo. It's really loud. It's like you're in an, you know, under an airliner that's taking off, and you lose all sense of time and all sense of place, and you're like completely out of chronological time, and you're just in the moment in this incredibly intense, almost shocking way. 
And, um, you know, I, I really love that experience. It was, it, you know, it was like an, an intense uh, flow state. You know, if you were a chick sent me high, that's what you'd say. It was an intense spiritual flow state. Um, and it was, it was awesome. And it was a great community. Um, and, and so I was fortunate to fall in with them um, very much so. And I, you know, so to me, like religions, are, it's like a GPS system, you know. I mean, you know, you, you plug in um, uh, Hope, Michigan. Okay? Right. Um, say Hope College in Holland, Michigan. Right. right. And, you know, you, you can take all kinds of little missteps on the route. You, you can go all kinds of directions and some, you know, some of them are, some of them work better than others. But the point is that in the end, uh, no matter how long it, it takes, you still get to your destination. Right. And so religions for me are kind of like a GPS system. I think that they're all um, meant to get us to this sense of oneness with this infinite mind that um, exists before time and space that, comes before all matter that comes before the big bang that is the supreme being of ultimate love and that underlies and shapes the thermodynamic constants of the universe and all the things that the physicists talk about but it also exists within us in a very special way as what you know quakers would call an inner light or you know buddhists would call the inner being and if we can just get free from the pulls and distractions of the outer world and center ourselves deeply and mindfully and connect with that, um, then we can, we can come into these higher spiritual um, strengths, uh, kindness, forgiveness, uh, a love that goes beyond usual limits, and so forth, etc. So that's where we're trying to get. And um, it doesn't matter too much to me how we get there. I think that's beautiful. And I think also <clears throat> very wise. And I think, how do I say this? I, I, maybe I'll just refer to your book, but I feel like that would be wonderful if all of the world's religious leaders could have a similar opinion that maybe like you said, GPS, I've, I've said, I believe all religions are part of it. The, you know, the blind man and the elephant metaphor. We're all talking about the same thing. We just have a different tradition. <coughs> we grew up in a different part of the world. We have different symbols and different names for the same thing. And that this sectarian, um, anger, or I have to, uh, my religion is better than your religion. My God is bigger than your God or your God has too many names. And I only want one name or um, uh, you have to have some sort of literalism mm -hmm. uh, really takes you, the, even the idea of making some type of argument like that and putting you know, the 12 things in the Christian church, for instance, I, I believe brings you out of the spirit of the entire message of all the great teachers, including Jesus, um, yeah. the first Buddha, and all of the great teachers, because it's all of a sudden turning it into some sort of ego mission or tribal mission or uh, almost like war. And I believe, you know, the Bible says God is love. Um, it, I mean, the Buddhist texts talk about the universe being full of love while life is suffering. You probably know 
how to quote these things better than I, but uh, in the moment that we start to other or put other religions or other people that follow different traditions in another category, um, we, we lose empathy and thus uh, detract not only pain possibly on them, but pain internally uh, on our, ourself and separating ourselves in a way in that moment from uh, spirit, infinite mind, God, universe, whatever name you want to call it. Um, like you said, the physicists are starting, you're talking about, you're even connecting it to the physics things that are coming out about, uh, you know, energy and matter and these sort of things, which we, that's a whole nother topic, but I, I'm glad that you, you brought this up and do you have any sort of, I'm, I could get, get, go to the book, but do you have any sort of way to kind of maybe summarize that further in a way that would make sense to the audience who may have different traditions and been brought up in different ways? Well, I think most people are shaped in a community and communities typically represent traditions. So I'm, I'm an Episcopal Christian. I will still go to mass, not because I'm too into the creeds. I'm not. A lot of those were political negotiations that went on, you know. And right, like the Nicene Creed was a right, it was a but, it was a political thing. Yeah. But I'm kind of like Albert Schweitzer. He wrote a book called The Mysticism of St. Paul, and he did feel that somehow just mystically considered uh, beyond rationality, that there was something about the the love and forgiveness that Jesus manifests um, in his dying moments that kind of closes the gap between us and the infinite. That's all I'll say. And and so, um, <clears throat> you know, the passage I like from the New Testament is do this in remembrance of me. So I have a, a, a tradition and I've known a lot of people in that tradition, but I've also loved all these other, I mean, eventually, by the way, I quit a career in, and I did a couple of years in re, of research in immunology at UPenn, but I left following the dream and I went to the University of Chicago Divinity School, which is the hotbed of world religions. And I actually got to study with Mersha Eliade, who wrote Shamanism. Joseph Campbell was a visiting professor in that point in time. Uh, Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi was across the street writing his flow book about these mystical moments of intense creativity. And I, I you know, to me, um, the GPS metaphor is is a good one. I have a hard time with the GPS, by the way, because I'm not as skilled <laughs> with it as I should be. And sometimes I just wound up going these wacky ways, but eventually I get home, you know? <laughs> yeah, I I love that. I think that's a perfect, I think that's a perfect segue to, to talk about this. I want to, I definitely want to talk more about some of your discussions about reclaiming the soul spirit and mind versus materialism, some more of that, but I want to maybe connect it back to the story for a minute because um, maybe is there something that reminds you of your life story that from what we were just kind of talking about Mm -hmm. this, trying to, you know, see things for their value, see all the traditions for their value, have your own tradition. That's great. And, but um, trying to accept and, and love all people. Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, so, uh, I mean, for me, uh, when I was up in New Hampshire, uh, I had the tremendous good fortune of listening to a presentation by the artist Norman Rockwell. 
Mm. He lived in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, which is Western Mass. And he, you know, he had done this incredible picture. It's iconic called the golden rule. It's got all these people from every possible tradition, every color, every race, every gender, uh, you know, every age. And, and the guy in the denim jacket in the middle rubbing his chin, the sort of secular existentialism. But they're all focusing their minds on this one beautiful statement written in gold letters across the front of the painting. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And, um, and actually, um, we know from scientific studies, they look very serene, they look very peaceful. When people just put their minds on how they can help others in that sort of deep meditational way, the Buddhists do loving kindness meditations, it turns off all these uh, neural circuits associated with hostile and destructive emotions like bitterness, rumination, and all that kind of thing. And your mesolimbic pathway gets going and you're doling out more dopamine and some other chemicals that, that can be soothing. So, um, you know, it was really amazing to hear him. And, and he said there's no edges to the painting because it's supposed to capture all of humanity. And then he said, shockingly, if your listeners go to, you know, say, the Google this, he said there's a halo in the image. And we all looked around. And he had this stick pointer, you know, and he said, here it is. And um, there's a white circle in the middle of the painting. It's a big one. It starts with a rabbi's beard and goes around to a toddler's shirt and comes up on the other side. And he said, I'm not that religious. Um, but he said, um, I believe that if you get into the spirit of helping others and asking yourself, how can I use my talents to contribute to the lives of others? He said, it's like surfing. You have to surf, you have to use your energy, you have to get some speed up and catch the wave. But once you catch the wave, all you have to do is balance. Then you're just moving on this divine energy, he said. You know? and, and that's what the halo is. And so you and that's really synchronicity too, that you can you can make, you can see, you can feel this connectedness, but it's not completely unconditional. You have to try to live um, in a way that is unharmful to others and that is helpful to others and then there's this kind of natural convergence um, that's a very very beautiful thing and so yeah that's my view of it all uh, and i think every tradition has within it this concept of of do unto others if whether you're reading the upanishads or the you know the hebrew bible or whatever it might be it's always there as the baseline but that's just a signpost because if we can live by that, we can we can find this kind of inner dimension. Yes, I think that is a great prescription, and I think I I feel like your work when I was reading your book was an attempt to you know you hear this sort of you know in the black and white thinking, which was what usually happens when we're stressed out. We get into a little black and white thinking. And, and I think because of various political movements and different movements in science, different movements in religions here in the United States, we've had this, is it religion or science? And what I think I love about your career and why I was so excited to interview you is because you're like, it's both and. Yeah. It's both and. It's science and religion. They're both okay. We don't have to have one conclusion. We can hold both and they're both valuable 
and their own ways and contributions. It's about how you apply it. It's not about I'm right. This is the way. This is not the way. We are humans. We have a very small, if we look at the universe, I think Carl Sagan has that famous quote. I can't remember what it is because I didn't write it down. But we're like this little speck in this gigantic, it's it's unbelievably uh, incomprehensible, even to string theory scientists, uh, to how small we are. Um, and yet we are here on this planet, which is the size of an anthill, actually a lot smaller than an anthill, I think there's, but and arguing about who's right when we don't even know how we got here, other than some signs in the science. And of course, everyone's got their own creation story. But we know next to nothing. We know right. next to nothing. I, I right. like to say it's better, it's better to uh, always be kind than always be right. Right, exactly. And so I love this, how, how you're like, it's both and. There's value in both and bring them into your life and see the value. So I love, I mean, I read some of your, they're all over my desk, but I read some of your, a little bit of these studies that you had published um, about just how empathy can affect you, um, compassionate care. And so maybe you can make a statement about, I want to bring in just for the science crowd that's listening, uh, just a little bit about how it's okay to to be to accept things from both paradigms. We don't have to choose between science and spirituality or sp- science and religion. You don't have to choose. And, you know, um, Paul, a fact is a fact. A finding is a finding. Mm-hmm. Um, some people, like I'm in a big medical center here at Stony Brook. It's very intense. A lot of high-powered scientists um, they can interpret that fact from a materialistic paradigm um, if if they want, and many do. But you can also take the same fact and interpret it from um, a non-materialist perspective. That doesn't change the fact, but we can interpret it very differently. So, for example, even when I was on the bridge, I'm around, I'm in a department of preventive medicine. It's loaded with biostatisticians and epidemiologists. And they'll still say, you know, look, at some point in the great history of the universe, highly improbable things occur, impossible possibilities, you might call them, you know. And it, it, it you know, it, it could be explained by pure chance that you made it all the way over to that, to San Francisco, and you're on that bridge and you met Harry. And you had that experience, but it could just be random. And if they want to explain it that way, they can. Now, to me, just from a purely logical point of view, that's a stretch. It's a big stretch. It's actually more rational for me to say, wait a minute, there's some cherishing presence in the universe that we don't fully understand, and it can bring us together in exactly the right moment at the right time in the right place in the right way and these kinds of miracles can can happen on route 80 you know um so i don't argue the point uh, i mean actually i don't i don't and by the way in the medical school here i don't push route 80 on anybody although I, the other day i got an invitation from a, a clinician to do this uh reading on route 80 uh at her home uh in a couple of weeks and there'll be about 60 medical students there you know, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to tell them about the dream, and they can interpret it however they want to. 
But yeah, I think that science um, and and spirituality, religion, you know, these things are not uh, reasons for us to be divided. And um, uh, if if you look at physicists, I mean, about two thirds of physicists, uh, you know, Paul Davies is a good friend of mine, a Templeton Prize laureate. Um, you know, he wrote a book called The Mind of God, John Barrow at, at uh, Trinity College, Cambridge, you know, that all the mathematical uh, formulas of the universe point like Plato and Plotinus thought to an infinite mind. And so there's some kind of ordering principle uh, that they see, uh, and they feel that that's a very plausible uh, position to make. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and, and it's, and as you said, it's open to interpretation. Obviously humans have been making up, like you studied under Joseph Campbell, humans have been coming up with creation stories and stories about why we, why a human does a bad thing or why a human does a a good thing or why a human uh, wants to procreate. Like we come up with stories for all sorts of things. And it's, it, it is, like you said, a fact is a fact and a story is a story, but there is a paradigm of how you interpret it. And that is, that is a choice because, um, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be both. And, and you can have different viewpoints of the same thing. Is is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. And, and sometimes, you know, it, it, it becomes a problem. So the, the reason I met Sir John Templeton, the great investor and philanthropist who's funded all this work on science and spirituality over, he's passed away now, was because in about 1990, I wrote in the American Journal of Psychiatry a deconstruction, a kind of pulling apart of DSM-3R. That's the Diagnostic oh, yes. and Statistical Manual. And I looked at it in terms of how it treated religious and spiritual ideation. And like 95% of it was pathological in its, as examples of various kinds of mental illness, whether it's grandiosity or, you know, religious conversion was dissociative condition, otherwise unspecified, I mean, it went on and on. Um, and, and, and so I wrote an article about this, and, and Peter Steinfels, who was the religion writer for the New York Times, picked it up, and I eventually helped with the editing from DSM-3R to dsm 4 and they took a lot of that out. They would, they would even take a Negro spiritual, a beautiful Negro spiritual, like he walks with me and he talks with me. And that was the example they gave of magical thinking. Oh, my goodness. So, so it, it sort of, you know, I mean, most psychiatrists can respect spirituality, religion. They may not believe it or adhere to it, but uh, they can respect it as a way that people manage life and, and, and attachments and the need for order and so forth. But, you know, um, um, yeah, so sometimes, sometimes we don't realize that these things are, are compatible. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, by the way, I have to say, Paul, I do not go for um, what I'll call zealotry. I mean, the, you know, the great Muslim thinkers, because they too believe that mind, the Muslim, if you go back into the you know, ninth and 10th centuries, the great Muslim theologians, they weren't writing summas, but they wrote books about dreams and interpreting dreams and mind. What is mind? And they also had a strong sense of this infinite mind that is underneath, underlying the universe. And, um, you know, what's, what's fascinating um, about them, they understood interconnectedness. They took dreams with kind of wonderful creative uh, um, seriousness 
Uh, where was I going with this? Just remind me. <laughs> oh, I, I think you were talking about how you didn't go for zealots, which I kind of took as yeah, yeah, yeah. fundamentalist so, so, religion. So in the true Islamic tradition, the, using your mind, you know, uh, thoughtfully, uh, with discernment, uh, somewhat critically, not not uh, skeptically or in a jaded way, but but using your mind and the and and principles of logic and and being uh, mindful and and a scholar. That was so much um, a, a sign of a praiseworthy life. And so so the Islamic tradition um, is not about fanaticism. You know, it's really about at its best. It's about using your mind. In the right way, because the mind is a gift. I love that. Yes, and I think, yeah, I think we're definitely on the same page with um, about the fundamentalism versus how you apply a, a, a larger spiritual lens. I was, and I've got something more on the materialism I wanted to talk about. I guess I'll just go there and then I want to ask you about some of your scientific articles for the science listeners. But there is this, this little passage in your book when you met Dr. Foley. And I believe that was at Case Western was. School of Medicine. And uh, you were worried that uh, because you, you had opened up about infinite mind and, and, and talked a little bit about spirituality that they were going to reject you. So I kind of wanted to read this if this is okay with you. Sure. So now the boy did not think that you were talking about mind precedes matter. Oh, here, I'll start a little earlier. So Dr. Foley was a second generation Boston Irishman and a graduate of the Boston Latin School and Harvard Medical School who had read a lot of Emerson. Like Emerson, yes, Oversoul has something to do, something that is just categorically different from matter, he responded. I know neurologists who keep an open mind about that, and I certainly do being Catholic. So the boy, that's who you refer to yourself as in the story, which I actually love because it's very much more universally applying. Um, So the boy explained that he meant what he meant a little bit more fully. We may have a spark of that oversoul within us, like a bit of light flowing outwards from a Roman candle, or maybe like little inlets filled with water from the ocean. This is not derived from matter because there are so many mental experiences people have that are mystical and take them well past time and space. And they have a consciousness of the oneness and of the one mind. Lots of great philosophers and theologians from Plato to Augustine have thought that mind precedes matter in the universe and that we speak and that we each have a spark of it within. But we have to be so introspective to elevate our awareness of and not be focused on the body. They believe that we have an original spiritual nature that is good and truthful and beautiful and the source of inner peace and harmony. So even if the brain deteriorates in from Alzheimer's or some other cause, like my grandmother, she still had a spiritual essence within, and sometimes it became apparent, depending on the day. In other words, we don't need to rule out the idea of the eternal soul. And I think this is right at the moment where you thought you were going to be booted. Now, the boy did not think that this is the kind of discussion that was likely to get him too far in a sophisticated medical center while seated in the foyer of a psychiatric hospital where a materialistic view of the mind as nothing but cells and neurons is the only acceptable one. He expected that he would soon be heading back to Terrytown for good. Dr. Foley, however, surprisingly agreed with him. Well, after all my years, I too think that mind may well be more than matter, and you have to be open-minded about what lies beneath the chaos of dementia. I have seen too many cases of surprising lucidity when we thought there could be none. 
I'm Catholic and haven't given up on the idea of a soul, Dr. Foley said. But in such a materialistic age, the idea of soul is a huge stretch for many people. And I, I love this part. And Dr. Foley, it is a pretty, this is you, a pretty dark age because if all we are is tissue and matter, then what is the basis for believing in any kind of lasting human dignity? Aren't we then in the end, as Bertrand Russell famously wrote, just complicated pond scum? And then we sink into discussions about the life unworthy of life and useless eaters. Materialism is never going to provide a firm basis for human dignity, especially when people lose their ability to reason and be economically productive. Dignity must be grounded in something sacred and eternal. St. Paul said that we are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within us. And the Hindus say that within each of us is the supreme being. They say, namaste. To the boy's continuing astonishment, Dr. Foley answered, you know, it's refreshing to hear a younger man like yourself speak of the sacred, of a sacred dignity. I've never been convinced that all aspects of mind and even memory are derived from matter. Open-mindedness is what we need. You are bringing joy to me in my old age. Our drives for truth, goodness, and beauty strike me as spiritual in nature. Yeah, that was Joe. So Joe had been the president of the American Neurological Society. I mean, he was a big-time neurologist. He'd come there years earlier from Harvard, where he'd been the chair. And... Um, you know, sitting there in the foyer of, was Hannah Pavilion, which was the psychiatric hospital. You know, I just talked with him, and we had this relationship based on that conversation that went on for 20 years. And he was on the search committee, so the only reason I got a job at Case Western and UH was because of Joe, because uh, he was very revered. But one time, um, we went to uh, Mount Vernon, Ohio which is like in the middle of the state, it's near Kenyon College, and there's a geriatric psychiatric hospital there. And um, there was a wing of it which was devoted to people with uh, Down syndrome who'd gotten into their 50s and 60s. And most of those people have, uh, as well, they call the duly diagnosed uh, Alzheimer's disease. And so we spent like a half the day there and we noticed that the, these incredibly kind and diligent caregivers, these, you know, nurses, aides and, and, and a couple of doctors and nurses, they were Hindus. And they, apparently they had, they had gone there with a kind of a sense of medical mission, if you will. And they lived in some homes that were near the Institute. And uh, so Joe and I took, you know, maybe six or seven of them out to the only restaurant in Gambier, Ohio, and it was a pizza place, okay? And so we sat them down for lunch, ordered a couple of big pizzas, and we asked them, so why? Why do you care so much for these people? And I, by the way, I've always referred to these people as deeply forgetful people, and, and, and have written about that and even had international conferences on that language game because Dementia is so derisive often. But, um, but they said, at that lunch, they said, namaste. They said, you know, I honor the divine in you and you honor the divine in me. And so for them, regardless of what was going on with the brain and the communicative process, there was still this underlying fullness. And um, it was very deep. People may not have linear rationality, but they can still have consciousness and awareness and symbolic rationality. 
And, and so I'm a big believer that we should never start writing these people off as, you know, dead, husks, shells, gone, and all that kind of thing. <clears throat> and, and, and that's why I, I define hope in this context as being open to surprises. Because, hey, if your audience Googles this, Google Rudy Tanzi, T-A-N-Z-I. And Rudy is a really famous Alzheimer's neurologist at Harvard. He's a friend of mine. And um, he's very senior. And he has a lot of uh, uh, videos on terminal lucidity in people with dementia. So look, they haven't uttered a word. They're, they're, they're in the end stages of a progressive assault on their brain. But lo and behold, you know, at the end, they'll light up and they'll, they'll, they'll say something that is completely insightful. And I've written papers about this and, and done case histories. And Rudy says it's very common. And so then you ask yourself, where's that coming from? Well, you could say, okay, maybe it's some little bit of neurological tissue that's firing, you know. Mm -hmm. But it, that does, that's a stretch for me. It's better to say, look, underneath all of this chaos, there is a soul. And that soul has its identity and its eternity. And it's not compromised. And so grandma's still there. That's the article, you know. That I, and I wrote that in Bangalore at the Indian Institute for Advanced Studies six years ago. Because I've been invited there to do this conference on the deeply forgetful. And all these neurologists and philosophers and psychologists in India, most of them Hindus, they, they listened to this. They were fine with it. You know, now if I tried to plug that in our neurology department, I'd probably get slapped. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yes. And so, yes, speaking of, I, I want to... I, I, I want to be respectful of your time, but are you okay talking a little bit more about the science? Uh, that you yeah, I'm good for about 20 minutes, 25 minutes. Okay. I, I, I love that we've been covering all this personal material, spiritual material, but you've had a phenomenal career in science. Uh, could you talk about a little bit about, I mean, let's just go with this, um, about how you've been researching um, how volunteering or doing good acts or trying to help the community or just or getting involved can lead to better health outcomes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I well, about ooh, 11 years ago, I, I wrote a book, a lead author on a book called Why Good Things Happen to Good People, How to Live a Healthier, Happier, Longer Life by the Simple Act of Giving. Um, you know, that's not always the case. It's a scientific generalization. But here's, here's the deal. Like, you know, we did a study of widows and widowers and demonstrated that, you know, they've been happily married, uh, uh, they lose a spouse, and then they go through naturally a period of grief and bereavement. They get through that quicker and in a more lasting fashion if they can self-report that they're helping in their neighborhoods. Maybe it's through their faith community. Maybe it's just through some local association. Uh, maybe they're working with the homeless, but they're doing something to help other people. Well, this article came out, and it turns it happens to be the case. There's a New York Society of Widows and Widowers, shockingly. Oh. <clears throat> and they called me, sitting here in my office, and I say, well, we're having a conference, an annual conference in Manhattan. Would you come give a talk? So I went in there and I gave this plenary talk in this in this Marriott hotel, 
And there were, you know, several thousand people there. <clears throat> and, um, and I was talking about the inner benefits of giving that you'll be able to deal with uh, disappointments and loss more easily. Uh, you'll be less susceptible to depression. Um, you'll feel more resilient. You'll even feel that your friendships are more meaningful and deeper. And and uh, and I went on. I said you'll even sleep better because these were things that we were we were showing. And so so there was this guy in the back of the room, way in the back, and he's like frantically waving his hands. And I said, "Yes, sir." And he said, "I don't care what you say, buddy. I don't do nothing for nothing." <laughs> And I kind of knew, I, I love New Yorkers, but I kind of knew I wasn't in Cleveland. I mean, <laughs> sorry, yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, I know what you mean. The, yeah, Midwest, I mean, like, the Mid Midwest is passive aggressive. New York, they tell you what they're about. Yeah, yeah, but you drive on the Long Island Expressway, you know what I mean. But I'm telling you that that even if I could have, if I could have convinced him that he had all these internal benefits that he was getting away from stress, he'd, re he'd recover from his grief better, he, a lot of different things. He would still say, but I don't do nothing for nothing. So he's thinking I've got to get a calculable reciprocal payback, you know? And, and that's how people think they're kind of, unfortunately, um, um, they're almost hoodwinked by that idea. I mean, it is the case that sometimes you got to be practical and you have to be careful not to give away everything you have because then there'll be nothing left for you and your family. So there are these kinds of calculations that have to go on prudently. Uh, but in general terms, the internal benefits are themselves worthwhile. But if people think, well, if I'm, if, if that's how I view it, I'm just a sucker, which is what he was saying, mm -hmm. then we really miss uh, really the greatest opportunity, not just to help others, but also as a, as a byproduct, um, you know, to help ourselves. Absolutely. I, I love that. And I love that the science backs you up. I, there's a report you were, you were citing that said volunteering can actually lower levels of inflammation and cholesterol in the body, lower oh, yeah. body mass index, and uh, even help mental health issues such as depression and schizophrenia. And I love that because not only is it physically and scientifically measurable that a little bit of volunteering, even a little bit of volunteering, which is what I read in one of the articles, will benefit you, but that is also helping the greater community and the greater world. There's a, there's a ripple effect. So, yeah. Yes, there is. I, I, I call it the dandelion effect. Like you blow into a dandelion. You don't know where those little seeds are going, but they're going places, you know, and some of them are landing and you may never know quite where, but, you know. Be sure of it. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, so, so you know, I've been writing these sorts of epidemiological studies on giving over the years, and, and they've been well-received. They've had a lot of influence. Now in, in, in uh, uh, adolescent psychiatric clinics, people are uh, recommending, clinicians are recommending volunteerism for these adolescents who are struggling with affluenza, and they're running on empty, and, you know, I mean, they need to find meaning and they're finding their meaning in edge work and basically, you know, self-destructive behavior. So, um, you know, in geriatric clinics now, it's not just getting meals on wheels to somebody, but if they're able to do so, um, letting them volunteer. So you'll see uh, websites like a volunteer match and so forth where people can connect 
with the volunteering opportunity in their in their neighborhood. And, and this is very, very good. It's very good in you know, even great studies dealing with pain because a lot of your experience of pain is one of um, uh, attentiveness. If, you, if you're helping others, it gets your mind off the experience of pain. Even in our car clinic, you know, uh, mended hearts, these are people who have had major um, heart surgeries and interventions, and some of them are wearing these big, uh, heart contraptions because the technology is getting pretty sophisticated in that field. But what they do is they come together every few weeks and, it, 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 you know, a couple hundred of them and they, they, they talk about uh, uh, other people, you know, they, they can visit in the hospital in the cardiac unit. You know, of course, they have to knock on the door and, and present themselves and be invited in. But how they can minister uh, to those people and help them really as wounded healers in a sense, you know, get through their experience. And so that's how AA works. I mean, the, you know, the final step in AA, the 12th step famously is, you know, help others, especially other alcoholics. And, and you know, we've shown how effective that is, you know, even getting an article in, in uh, the New York Times some years ago showing that if people are high quartile helpers, uh, they 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 are still sober. Forty percent of them are still sober one year after going dry. If they're low quartile helpers, only twenty two percent are dry. And also, by the way, you get a lot benefit with depression if you're helping others. And so these things are, can be studied. They can be understood. But in the end, you know, you can quote you can quote any scripture on the face of the earth at any time in history, whether it's it's better to give than to receive. God loves a cheerful giver. You can look at every tradition without exception. And, you know, you, you will find, I mean, even in, in, in uh, the Hebrew Bible, where, the, you know, you first get this idea of the golden rule, do unto others. You know, it basically says, uh, do not seek vengeance or bear a grudge, but love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it says. And that's scientifically accurate. Because if you can if you can focus your mind on so, something other than your own problems and your grudginess, you know, and you get freed of it. And and that's what the science says. And the medical outcomes. I love that there's hard medical outcomes to back that for the skeptics in the audience. And actually, just to bring in another another tradition, there's a there is a very famous Buddhist meditation. And the point of the Buddhist meditation is uh, when you're upset to start meditating on a few people that you like and say, I send them love. It's, I don't know the whole thing by heart, but mm-hmm. I, I wish this person love. I wish them happiness. I wish them ease with their life. Somebody easy, maybe even a pet, uh, maybe a parent, maybe somebody you're in love with. And you kind of do this three or four times. And then you are instructed to bring up the face or the idea of somebody that you personally either hate quote unquote or have a very strong aversion to and say the same meditation may they be happy maybe they be healthy maybe they have ease in the suffering of their life and then uh, lastly to yourself Mm -hmm. and uh it was just interesting because that's along the same lines about um, don't hold on to anger and you know we're all one like whoever this person was that offended you they're going through their own thing you know, it feels personal and maybe it is personal, but they're also going through something else. So what good is it to do 
to, to you to hold on to that, which then could turn into medically hypertension, right? Could turn oh, yeah. into elevated heart rate, could turn into all sorts of things. Your body gains weight when you're under stress. I mean, we know yeah. this from science. Oh, yeah. The studies on older adults uh, and, and also adolescents, this one great study out of Vancouver on high school students, you know, the controls weren't volunteering and, and the subjects were. And just an hour a week, they're volunteering and all the biomarkers of, uh, uh, you know, incipient uh, uh, vascular disease, which is a problem among younger adults now because they, you know, they, they're not getting out and socializing and, and they're somewhat more sedentary and they're stressed out. But uh, those things uh, go down to baseline. So there's a big benefit here. But, you know, uh, there's so much to be said about this in almost every area of uh, medicine. And also, you know, I, so I started a center here at Stony Brook, the Center for Medical Humanism, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics. Because bioethics is just quandaries. You know, do we use a feeding pig in a guy with a terminal stage Alzheimer's? Probably not, you know. But the important thing is, you know, we, we have a great big program and get all kinds of awards, you know, exposing students to the illness narratives, the stories that people tell of their illnesses and, and or their, the poetry they're writing or um, whatever. We, we bring them to the museum to do art and observation and just focus in mindfully on a portrait of someone who's, who's ill, whether it's Van Gogh or Degas. And, and, and write journals on that and think about it. And, and, and then that sort of elicits these empathic virtues and, and helps them become more sensitized and so that when they actually are engaging in communication with patients, they can be compassionate. Because we know that um, compassionate care is great for patients. So especially the science is especially clear with chronic conditions like diabetes, where you have to you know, discipline yourself and treat yourself, you know, year after year after year. Strongest predictor of success is, do you identify your immediate uh, principal physician as compassionate? You can have a lot of compassion in the people on the team, but that, that centrality of that relationship is core. This is kind of like Toby Cosgrove at the Cleveland Clinic. He wanted to know what got people out of the clinic, you know, healed up, wound healed after um, heart surgery, and the strongest predictor was whether they could identify their surgeon, okay? Not the nurse, not the clinical social worker, you know, not the pastoral care person. I mean, you, you know, but the surgeon, him or herself, as compassionate. Ah. So it's the centrality of that axis, that bond, that makes such a difference. But also, I mean, it's great for the clinicians themselves because if they can balance their lives and make room for this, this is why they went into medicine. They didn't come in to stare at screens, you know? Right. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, and, and, and they want to, they want to be humane. They want to connect. Uh, they don't want to just over objectify and over biologize everybody. Uh, but sometimes they don't have the opportunity to practice the way they want to. And they end up, getting depressed and leaving medicine. Because as you know from Viktor Frankl, you know, meaning is everything. And if you're just doing this routinized care, going through the motions, it, it doesn't help anyone. Well, the, and it's, so we're, we know about the patient 
needing the compassion and needing a narrative to be able to overcome their situation. So just to flip this real quick, I want to, I want to quote a little bit from your uh, recent article from the journal of academic psychiatry, because this is something I talk about all of the time in counseling, the common factors of counseling, why it works. You have rapport with the person, you both agree on a method, right? And then you both believe in the method. That's the allegiance. And then the method itself in counseling only takes about is only uh, responsible for about 10% of the treatment effect or less. So yeah. I want to throw this out here and then have you comment uh, as kind of we're getting closer to the close. But this is an article you published, Developing a Way of Being, Deliberate Approaches to Professional Identity Formulation in Medical Education. I just want to read this paragraph here. Professional socialization, the development of reflective capacity are critical elements that shape a medical trainee's professional identity. A 2010 Carnegie Foundation report argues that professional identity formation should be an important focus of medical educators, and the identity transformation remains the highest purpose of medical education. Number one, education achieves its highest purpose when a person develops new ways of thinking and relating to peers, with peers. Number two, Ultimately, the professional ideal is to develop physicians who can bring their, quote, whole person to provide whole person care, bringing themselves into it. Number three, an ideal professional identity embraces empathy, mm -hmm. mindful attention to patient care, integrity, self-awareness, teamwork, beneficence, respect, an equal regard for all, as well as an eagerness to learn, resilience, resilience and attention to self-care. Professional identity form formation has antecedents in the student's life prior to matriculation into medical school, but it is a lifelong endeavor achieved through critical reflection and exposures to role models who, quote, pass the torch from generation to generation. Professional identity formation is measured externally by reputation for excellence among peers and patients. And there's a lot more there, but I'm like, that is, a, that is exactly what I've been trying to elucidate to people I train. Um, obviously, we're in the counseling field, so we're not completely medicalized, but um, just that that is a wonderful summary. Can you comment on that from maybe a, a medical standpoint? Yeah, I mean, you know, medical education since like 1910, <clears throat> the Flexner Report, has been so totally focused on science. And um, the science is important. We all want, you know, physician scientists, we want them to know what they're talking about. But, um, you know, nowadays, I mean, uh, Abraham Vergesi at UCSF talks about the eye patient, okay? Like, you know, all you know is the read-off on your iPhone or your iPhone, you know, you just know this, these data sets that come spinning out of these technologies, and you don't actually even connect in the least with the patient. And then that's exacerbated by the medical records, you know? Atul Gawani wrote a really nice article in the New Yorker about a half a year ago, why doctors hate computers. <laughs> you know? And I go into the residency programs and I do these reflection rounds with them. And I ask them, so what's your ratio between screen time and actual meaningful interaction with patients and families? Some would say, oh, five to one, eight to one, four to one. And, and then they're complaining, you know, I, I didn't come to medical school for a desk job. So this is killing people, and uh, and you know it's robbing them of of their meaning and their purpose, and it's 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 very tough. But what one of the things we emphasize and needs to be emphasized everywhere is look the education in humanism, in compassionate care, uh, uh, is absolutely 
as important as anything else, if not more so. And, you know, when you walk into Mass General Hospital in Boston, there's this famous, most often quoted passage in American medicine. The secret to the care of the patient is in caring for the patient. It's by Francis Peabody. It was a Harvard Med School graduation address in 1925 that made it into JAMA the next year. And there it is. And that's absolutely true. But the bottom line is that um, we haven't we haven't gotten there yet. That's why in the book, you know, after I got back from the West Coast and read and all that, I had a job. I was a dialysis technician. Oh, that's right. <laughs> and and this was this big dialysis center in Manhattan with like thirty people in these jerry chairs, and they all had bovine grafts and butterfly needles, and these were plastic uh, coil old-fashioned dialysis machines that would sometimes explode onto the ceiling if you didn't get enough heparin in. So we had a really treacherous Christmas Eve. And uh, I didn't know what to do. Everybody was moaning and screaming and having BP drops uh, because one of these uh, coils had exploded. And uh, if, if hepatitis was electric, the place would have been on fire. <clears throat> and so I just, I you know, they liked me. I got along with them and I, I had learned that if you were kind, just don't, don't talk about empathy, just if you were kind and curious about these patients, the likelihood was that they would come back for their next treatment in two days. But if, you, they didn't, if that element wasn't there, they would vote with their feet. And when they voted with their feet, they were dead, basically, in, in four or five days. <clears throat> so that night, I, it was about midnight, you know, I, a little drummer boy was playing on this old tape recording machine in the middle of the desk in the middle of the room. And I said, you know, look, I, I know you're all from different kinds of traditions, but I want us to come together and just, you know, sort of breathe deep. And I'm going to tell you a story. And I told them the story about my blue angel dream. I told them about Harry on the bridge. And it was so amazing. And then they all started talking about their own experiences with synchronicity, these uncanny moments where things seemed too perfect to just be chance, and 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 they were they were disinhibited, to use a word, right? They were they were allowed to be free and to express this, and 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 that's when I kind of realized that um, you know it was I, I you know I don't lead with this story, but but you know but it's it's a it's a kind of an experience I had that can be liberating for people who want to think that their journey in life is more enchanting and the universe is more enchanted than maybe we sometimes are feeling it's safe to speak about. But that's why I wrote the book. I wanted people to be able to express this stuff and not be totally embarrassed. I love it. I think that is a perfect way to kind of wrap up our interview because it brings it back to the book, which is God, love, God and Love on Route 80 by Stephen G. Post. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in the show notes and have a link to that. Um, Also, we didn't really get too much into discussion, but I will be linking the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love, uh, which was started by somebody you, uh, Mr. Sir John Templeton. Yeah. He he faxed me from Lifer K. You know, he said, we need to study not just human love, but the love that made humans. He said, you know, the, that experience of love that almost invades us sometimes when our own, when we're kind of running on dry, but somehow we feel this inspiration 
So I faxed back to him, Sir John, what should we call it? He faxed back the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love. And since I'm at Case Medical School around a lot of high-level biologists, I faxed back, Sir John, maybe we should call it the Institute for Creative Altruism, because you know, well, altruism is like a science term. Right. He said no in his next fax, unlimited love up to $8.9 million. And I fax back, Sir John, I love that language. It jumps right off the page. <laughs> and I, I love that. Uh, I know you've got to get running here in a second, but I, I, I want people to check out this. I'll put this, I'll put all the links here in the show notes. But um, just a little preview, you should definitely read the book because you will learn that uh, deciding to study love and a loving perspective of science, a loving perspective of the world's religions and traditions and spirituality, actually, you need to be brave and courageous to have this perspective that we can all love one another and that uh, there is an infinite mind or some sort of, <clears throat> some truth in all of the spirituality. And you can see that love works in science in certain ways because... Uh, you were targeted by ISIS, and this is well explained in the book, and I'll let people uh, read that. Uh, I think that I don't want to spoil that because I feel like that yeah. story yeah. Uh, and the security and the UN and the website all needs to be read uh, because I think this is a teaser for the book. But this is uh, people who have an agenda of war and control and power, and I'm right and they're wrong and us versus them. They do not like this type of research in science. They don't like it in spirituality, interfaith, and they certainly uh, did not like you or this institute. And I, I want to commend you for being so brave. Well, what's your name on this? So, oh yeah, it's play. well. You know, there's always been in human nature a drive for two kinds of oneness. The, the 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 false oneness is the oneness by elimination. That's genocide, in-group, out-group, demonization. Oneness by elimination. We eliminate everybody who's not like us. And then we got the pure race, we got the pure this, we got the pure that. It's horrifying. But the true kind of oneness is Rockwell's oneness, which really embraces a shared humanity and sees that divine essence and dignity in, in all of us. And that's where I think we're going. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm just... Uh, very optimistic about the future, actually. Thank you, Stephen. I am too, and on my best days. And I appreciate when I when I read your book, I became more optimistic. So, I appreciate all your time and your work. And uh, you know, listeners, I would say check it check it out. There's so much uh, that Stephen has published, and I appreciate you sharing your personal story as well. So, thanks for being on our show, Stephen. It's a pleasure, Paul. Thanks for having me and. Uh, you know, best wishes to you with your clinical work and all of your healing listeners. We're all healers in the end, you know. Absolutely. I appreciate that. And I will I will take that. And I uh, hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Okay, you too. Be well. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast with Paul Krauss. If you're enjoying it, please share it with people you know. I would surely appreciate it. My goodness, I just can't say enough about that interview with Stephen G. Post. It was just incredible interacting with him and reading his book. It's just amazing what happens when you actually follow your dream. Now, obviously, he had put in a lot of hard work into reading, 
into science, into his jobs, and especially into his spiritual practices. Um, in the book, he reveals that he uh, does not drink alcohol or use drugs, and I, and I think he never has. Uh, he's really a true believer in the sense of reading what's on the page and trying to apply it to his life. And he's taking in the wisdom of the great teachers, both science and spiritual teachers, and you can see the fruit in his life. Just look at some of his publications, many books, science accolades, and all of his work in the community and working to shift the culture in a positive direction, not just in the United States, but around the world. So if you want to know more about Stephen Post, I really encourage you to check out his website and all of the other links I'm going to put in the show notes or just Google his name um, if in the medical articles uh, like LexisNexis or PubMed. And uh, I'm really happy that he was able to be on the show. Until next time on The Intentional Clinician, I'm wishing you all a safe and peaceful week. If you are a clinician and looking for electronic medical records, I recommend Simple Practice. If you are interested in trying out Simple Practice, I have a link in the notes of this episode for a 30-day free trial. If you utilize the link I provided and eventually decide to subscribe, this podcast will get a small referral fee. I thank you in advance. I highly recommend getting involved with your local counseling or health organization as long as they have a good vision and mission. For instance, the American Mental Health Counselors Association and the American Counseling Association both have a great mission and vision that I resonate with, both trying to increase the quality of care, education to the public, and helping those who need counseling most through advocacy with government and also private equity programs. Here in Michigan, we have the Michigan Mental Health Counselors Association, and I really would love everyone in Michigan to join this that is affiliated with mental health. And if you're outside of the state, feel free. We will not refuse you being part of our organization. We are trying to bring quality mental health services statewide, increasing education to the public, promoting best practices, and working to keep licensed professional counselors and other professionals accessible by the public, including attempting to work with the state of Michigan on uh, greater access and more free services. If you want to know more about why professional organizations are important, please listen to the Intentional Clinician episode 32 and 33 in that order to see why it's important to join a uh, professional organization that has a good set of ethics. Uh, as you might learn from those episodes, there was another professional organization in the state who decided that it is their prerogative to uh, work against um, professional counselors uh, in a sort of turf war and basically ignore their ethics as professionals, which is very sad. So we need more of the people that believe that uh, the reason we are in this job is to help people and not increase our own wealth. So please, uh, even if you're a very poor counselor or a student, join your professional organization with a good ethical vision and mission and not one that is going to try to hack at other professions. Thank you. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss and his guest. And while these are based upon the literature they have read and experiences in the field, they should not be viewed as the definitive opinion on any subject. 
Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you are in a crisis, please dial 911 right now or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment with a local counselor in your area. You can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians at Health for Life Grand Rapids and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting our website, www.healthforlifegr.com. That's www.healthforlifegr.com. Thanks so much for listening. to be alive.